You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. All right, great to see everyone. Welcome back. Hacking Consciousness, um, Physiology and Consciousness, Part 2. Really excited to have you here again. So in session one, we've essentially learned that nature is structured in layers. And at the most fundamental level, you've got the unified field, and which in this framework is consciousness. And through a technique of transcending, you can access that consciousness, that unified field. Dr. Nader basically did a really nice review of the field of human biology and cognitive science and introduced us essentially to the hard and easy problems that are faced by the scientists in these fields. And also in terms of what are the different states of consciousness that we have within these fields. So then he also presented the thesis that matter is just an appearance of consciousness. That's a really big idea. And a very, very big idea, I'd say. <laughs> and I'm really curious to see you know, what some of the proof points are from Dr. Nader and how you could possibly arrive at that conclusion. So without further ado, I'd love to hand it over to Dr. Nader, who will talk more about it. Thank you. Good afternoon. I will start by reviewing quickly what we have covered before. Michael did a great job. We defined consciousness and with respect to other possible ways of looking at awareness, alertness, and then we state there are different states of consciousness that we do actually go through waking, dreaming, sleep, but we have different impaired states of consciousness that can go from anesthesia to coma to very great awake states of consciousness. They are altered states of consciousness that also can go from hallucinogens and different states of drowsiness and wakefulness all the way to what's called higher states of consciousness by people who experience things like spiritual experiences of ecstasy. In the East, it's called samadhi, nirvana, transcending. So consciousness has all kinds of aspects and qualities to it that we experience. There is the changing relative consciousness and we wonder if there is something that is a pure non-changing field of consciousness. We looked at the different aspects of consciousness in terms of wakefulness and activity and then we found that there is a correlation between these different states of consciousness and brain activity. In this case, for example, the brain metabolism, but there are different analyses of electroencephalography and different analyses of PET scanning that show what happens in the brain in the different states of consciousness. We also touched on the field of how information is processed and that it's not also always conscious, but there is some subconscious implicit perception, implicit learning and unconscious reality. We also define two kinds of generally consciousness, a background consciousness, which is what we acknowledge to be ourself, who we are, our identity, 
and what are the specifics of consciousness, which are our wishes, intentions, desires that project on that identity, on that self-consciousness. There is individual consciousness. We know what we are conscious of. How can we decide whether anyone else or anything else is conscious? And as Michael said, we touched on the easy problem and the hard problem. The easy problem is the relative problem, which takes us to the neuronal or neural correlates of consciousness, which means what's happening in the brain when we are aware or experience anything. And that's relatively easy. It's still not yet completely understood, but relatively we can say one day we will discover how when we look at a flower, we have a beautiful image of the flower, we acknowledge the color of it, and we know that it is a flower. But that can happen through these different parts of the brain that we covered. And there are, as we said, primary areas of perception. And then there is the associative area, the association areas, which seem to be more correlated to when we have actually experience of consciousness. And there is the reticular formation, which works as a thermostat of consciousness, waking us up and making us asleep. So there is these different aspects of neuronal activity, brain activity, that we know are directly correlated with our alertness, our wakefulness, and also with our experience. Now, the self, there are different levels of our self. We discussed the physical self and the non-physical, more thought level self, the physical self of the body, the awareness of what's happening in our physiology. And then we checked a little bit about time and how time is processed in our awareness. Then the main problem that we want to handle is what is really consciousness. And that's the hard problem, hard problem for scientists. It's usually talked in terms of qualia, which means individual moments of awareness or continuing moments of awareness in which we are aware of something that is more than just the red of the flower, but the actual redness of the flower and what it causes to us. Why we are feeling it's beautiful, why we are feeling we like it, why we are, it brings memories, it brings uh, subjective experiences, and it becomes personal, and it enters in our life, and it has a meaning. So all of these moments of consciousness that we experience in a very subjective way that are very abstract, it's very hard to find why and how the brain brings them about. This problem of consciousness in terms of the hard questions actually takes us to more than simply the basic feelings and scientific understanding of correlates of consciousness, but it takes us to all kinds of questions that are of philosophical nature. Determinism, free will, is there law and order in the universe? What's the universe really like? To what extent we can depend on what our awareness or our consciousness tells us? We took the example that we see the sun moving in the sky. We say the sun moves from the east to the west. But then when we analyze properly, we find that it's the earth turning around the sun. So our sensory perception is sometimes misleading about the reality of things. And that's in a very classical term. But even when we go further and look at the quantum mechanical reality, we find that the quantum mechanical, which is the basis of all that we call classical, which what we 
encounter into how objects move, how things are perceived, that there is some fundamental aspect of nature in which particles are not localized. They are, have a probability to be anywhere. An electron has a probability to be in very large number of places. Practically, a subatomic particle can be almost anywhere in space. And it is when the observer looks at it that it collapses at a point. Since we are all made out of particles, does it mean we are also potentially in every part of space and that we collapse somewhere? All of these wave function analyses and all of these aspects of modern scientific understanding and findings of quantum mechanics really tell us that the senses give us very, very vague idea of the reality. We know that for example, our ears can hear only a certain frequency of sound. Our eyes can see a certain frequency of light. And suppose that we had a system in our nervous system that instead of seeing the electromagnetic field, we could see, let's say, the magnetic field. Or we could see the gravitational field. Then all this space that we are around us that seems empty and has nothing in it, we would actually be full and solid. It would become opaque. So there is a relativity on the reality of what we experience. Because gravity is everywhere. Suppose that our system could see gravity, and therefore we'd be flooded with gravity. We would be living in walls. We wouldn't be seeing anything. So this really brings to our awareness the relative nature of our, our sensory experience. This has led to long discussions in science and philosophy about what is real. And we have discussed a little bit about uncertainty uh, in, in nature and different aspects of the laws of nature going, as Dr. Higlin in the first session presented, from different layers of reality all the way to the unified field. And we discussed the different kinds of realities that ultimately are classified in our general understanding, be it philosophy or science. And that is the material reality, the physical changing reality. And that is that reality which is mostly now concentrated and going around the field of consciousness. That is the non-physical. And it has its own reality also, because it is in and through consciousness that we experience love, that we have subjective feelings, that we have fears that make us make decisions, that we have attractions, etc. And that is another aspect of our own reality. There are two kinds and sources of knowledge that we have also, and that one is a subjective level, which is using our reasoning, our intellect, logic, mathematics. These are really subjective uh, levels of understanding. We use mechanism inside our consciousness, inside our awareness, to say that 1 plus 1 equals 2, and we create equations. And based on these equations, we try to understand the universe. This is not something which primarily is an objective reality, which is based on matter and physical structures. It's something which is totally a phenomenon of a dynamics that happen in consciousness. So. We face the reality question, which is normally considered in philosophy in terms of ontology, which is what is real? What, is, what does our perception show us? What is fantasy? What is dream? What can we trust? And for us humans, we said, there is one thing actually that we can trust. And that is that we are conscious. 
Because when you look at all the data and all the findings and all the analysis, ultimately all the physical world is not as trustworthy, except in relative terms, as consciousness. Which means in absolute terms, everything is changing. Everything is dependent on the mechanisms of perceptions that we have. For instance, a Geiger counter will see the universe differently from a human brain. How does the fish see the universe? How does the tree see the universe? How does the particle see the universe? How does a different machine with a different kind of computing see the universe? And what is the real reality of the universe? It is something that is still open to discussion in terms of scientific understanding. There is one thing for us humans that is absolutely sure, that is we are conscious. And that is a basis of a long philosophy that has emerged from this. And the questions of where is this consciousness coming from? Where is this consciousness coming from? And in this area, there are two different growing categories, because in this slide, there are different theories. We don't want to go through them necessarily one by one. We can see that they are divided into two. There is the vision of our reality in our universe, that we have two realities. That's the dualism part. There is something physical or material. It used to be called always materialism or material value of life. Now, if you hear the term physicalism, it's because there is a difference between energy and matter. And there is, when you go into quantum mechanics, matter is so non-local, it's so much just waves and fields that you cannot call it matter. So, but it's still energy and it's still something that is understandable in terms of transformation of energy. And so scientists and philosophers started to say, okay, it's not materialism, it's physicalism, anything that is physical. So the dualistic perception of our reality of the universe, or pluralistic if you like, has two things. It says there is matter or physical reality on one side, and there is the spiritual aspect, there is our mind and consciousness on the other side. This was something since Descartes that has been taken the Cartesian approach as there are these two. The problem having these two is not an issue. The problem is how do they interact with each other and which one is really real and whether one comes from the other, how is it possible that one would come from the other? That's the main question. This question faces the monistic perspective. Monistic perspective is in opposition to the dualistic understanding of consciousness versus matter. And that is monism says it could be materialist, materialistic monism or it could be idealism. The materialistic monism says there is nothing but matter. Forget about consciousness. Consciousness, if you're conscious, fine, you're conscious, but it comes from matter. Matter has evolved, it has produced the brain, the brain interacts in a certain way with its own self, and it produces something that we call consciousness. The other side is no to the contrary, it's all actually spirit, it's all mind, it's all uh, reality of one thing that actually kind of somehow we don't understand how, it shows up as matter. And this, there are idealism in this sense, or neutral monism, which says, okay, there is one thing, we don't know what it is, and that one thing produces both, actually, 
consciousness or non-material reality and material reality. But the origin is one. Always the origin is one. Now, we're not going to go into this, this kind of forum about creation and God and all of that. We could, but it is not the idea to go into belief systems and all of that. We're trying to analyze consciousness from a scientific perspective. Now, if we go to this monistic perspective, the main problem in monism is how one comes from the other. That is the main problem. Because you could assume anything. You could say there is, there is a God, there is a creation, there is a universe, there is consciousness, and all of that. The problem that scientists face is how this non-material reality becomes material. Or how this material reality, physical reality, creates the non-material. That is the main issue. And how would they interact? The easiest solution is to say either this exists or the other doesn't exist. And that's usually even easier than trying to find the logic. Now, what comes to our help is the greater and greater understanding of what physics is, what the physical reality is. Because when modern science analyzes, let's say this is the whole universe, but here we're seeing a society is made out of individuals. The individuals are made out of organ systems, organs, tissues, cells, and molecules. And then when you look at the molecules and the matter fields and the force fields, you find that there are four force fields and matter fields that are the you know, different electromagnetic field, weak force, strong force, and the uh, gravitational force. And then gradually, these have been unified, and Nobel Prizes have been given to those who have found this unification that ultimately brings us to the conclusion that there is a unified field. So there are unified field theories today that explain that there is one reality. It's really abstract. It's, in a sense, non-physical. And from that reality, in some way, some vibrational way, something, emerge all the fields. And then the fields in their vibrational forms, etc. they create quanta of energy. These quanta of energy collect together to create atoms. Atoms collect together to create molecules, and so on to create the entire universe. So when we look at consciousness, we can say, and this is the assumption, this is the theory, this is the presentation, that consciousness is actually that singularity. Singularity means single. It's not multiple. It's one reality. And that one reality, one single reality, one unified field reality, is actually consciousness. And we're writing it here with a, an uppercase C. So the proposed solution that I am proposing to you is that consciousness is primary. And in fact, we don't have to worry about how it creates anything physical. We're going to say it doesn't create anything physical as we know it. So we're going to follow this logic a little bit and see how it takes us, where it takes us, how our reasoning can make us believe that this is possible. So we are saying that matter is just an appearance within consciousness. So that is what I like to call the hard solution. The hard solution because it's a simple solution in a way, because consciousness is all that there is. That's all that we know about. It's the most intimate thing about us and, and that we know about. So we're fine. We know we're conscious. That's one thing we know is there. 
But what happens, what we see, you know, is it really like this? Does it change? Does it, what is its real nature? We can't really grasp, but we grasp consciousness. So it's simple for us logically to say that there is consciousness. It is hard because here we say consciousness is singularity, yet we see multiplicity. We see people, we see chairs, we see trees, we see galaxies. This is multiplicity. How can this be possible? So we discussed a little bit these points last time, that consciousness, why this is simple, and why it is hard, for example. The hard part is certainly that what we trust most, which is our senses, usually, is in fact going to be said to be the most deceptive thing that we have. So that's a hard solution to accept, something hard to digest. And so in that way, we have the different aspects of reality. To help us understand the hard and the simple part, we just have to try to look into history and put ourselves in different dimensions and see, for example, when people lived with a, what they used to consider the geocentric universe, which means the Earth is the center of the universe. This was a belief, a dogma. Everybody believed in that. That perception created all kinds of theories about the movement of planets, about the universe and how it works, etc. And it was very hard, that's again hard and simple, to accept that the Earth is not the center of the universe, that actually our planetary system is heliocentric. To accept that was very hard because everything depended on that logic, on that dogma. So in the consciousness of the people, it was very difficult to accept that. And in fact, as we know, they fought people and it was a big issue when we started with Galileo and all of that trying to say, no, we're not in the center, the, su the sun is in the center. The space-time experience also. You know, when they analyze the speed of light and how speed moves, etc., we don't need to go into these details. There were impossibilities in science to understand how could this be. It's impossible to solve the problem. What you got is some Einstein who said something absolutely unbelievable, and that is that space and time are related and they are both relative. The thing which you most believe in, that you're standing on this ground, that time goes by the clock, that you live so much, is completely relative. If you were to travel at the speed of light, time will stop. You will not age. And the space will completely change. It will either dilate at a certain speed or will contract, will actually physically contract. This hard thing that we are sitting in can shrink, completely shrink, becomes like a point. That's the theory of relativity. This is as if counterintuitive. It's hard to digest. But that is the reality, and that's the only solution that actually gives an answer to these hard problems. In a similar way, we are posed today to ask ourselves these big questions and see how we can actually solve them. And that is where the answer comes. So the answer comes from the fact that we said consciousness is primary. And I would like to encourage you to raise your hand if you have in the following minutes a question and there's something that I have not explained completely and you want to clarification, please raise your hand and we'll make it an interaction. 
So we all understand what is the assumption, what is the theory. The theory is consciousness is primary. The problem that we have is how all of us come to be as we are and our universe come to be as it is from this field of complete abstractness. In order to resolve this issue, we have to go to a question which is very simple in a sense. What is consciousness? What is consciousness meaning what are the dynamics of consciousness? What does it take to say consciousness? To say consciousness, you have to have three elements. Without these three, you cannot have consciousness. You have to have an observer. You have to have the observer observing something. And there must be a process that connects the observer to the observation, to the object. Because conscious, what do you mean I am conscious? I'm conscious of what? You must be conscious of something. Otherwise, there is no consciousness. So the consciousness, if we're saying consciousness is primary, it means there is a field which has a self-referral, auto-referral reality, and its quality is that it is consciousness. Now, I have developed these different aspects of consciousness. We'll see how it comes to us. Is that will allow us to study consciousness. We study consciousness by saying that it's a something that has three values. There is an observer, there is an observed, and there is a process of observation. The observer feature can be quantified in terms of its what we will call observerhood. It's a new English term, <laughs> which I hope will go in the dictionary. <laughs> And we're going to give it a symbol. O is for observe, observing, etc. And the R is for observer, because we're going to see observed and observing. Now, what is this OR in consciousness, in this primary singularity of consciousness? How much, how big is it? It's infinite. It cannot be otherwise, because there is nothing else but consciousness. That's what we are agreeing. Since there is nothing else but consciousness, the quantity of OR, which is observerhood, which is the ability to observe, is infinite. Now, what is the object or observed? Again, that's another new term. Observedhood. <laughs> the ability to be observed, to be an object. Now, they will call it O with a D for observed the D there. Okay? What is in this primary singularity observed? What is observed? Observedhood. It's infinite because there is nothing but itself. Okay? It's also infinite. It is observing itself, in fact. This primary consciousness, which is the unified field, is only observing itself. So its ability to observe is infinite, and the ability to be observed is also infinite. And the observedhood quality of it is infinite. Okay, so in the singularity of consciousness, observedhood is infinite. So OD equal infinite. Uh, what do you mean by the ability being infinite? There is consciousness. And consciousness requires three values. 
Now, these three values are, we are talking in the singularity, in the unified field, in the oneness of existence. Let's imagine that there is a time when we all are not there, nothing is there. It's just before the Big Bang, okay? just before the moments of the Big Bang. And there we're saying, the theory is, what we're presenting, is that there is consciousness there. It's not a proof that there is consciousness, but this is the proposition. And when you make a proposition, you start to see how it can make things work. Does it make sense? Could it lead to a logical conclusions? So the problem we're facing is how this consciousness actually leads to differentiation. The fact that it is consciousness already contains within it the three qualities of observer, observed, and observing. But these three qualities of observer, observed, and observing are infinite, are non-local. Non they are everything that there is before the Big Bang. You come to that conclusion because for us, for us to say that, we are, uh, that there's consciousness, we have to be conscious. So it only happens when consciousness becomes conscious. And when that happens, then therefore you have to include those three items. If consciousness will not become conscious, then those three items that you just described will not happen. But there cannot be consciousness. Why should we call it consciousness? We could call it uh, love, we could call it feeling, we could call it anything. We're calling it consciousness. We are making the logical decision because we want to hack consciousness. We are deciding, you know, that, okay, that is consciousness. Let's see where this kind of logic leads us. That's how the logic is going. The thing is, there is no proof of consciousness except in terms of personal experience. So people experience consciousness, they go through, you know, they meditate, they have higher states of consciousness, they have samadhi, they have nirvana, they take a drug, they get hallucination, they, they sleep, there is no wakefulness, they dream, the consciousness goes through this. There is no way to tackle consciousness except subjectively. Because there is no way you can see if I am conscious or not. You know you're conscious. I could be a zombie just telling you stories. So. What, what do you know what I have in me as consciousness? There is no way to experience or analyze consciousness except, except subjectively. So there is no way to come to a deduction and say, therefore, there is consciousness. The way we're going to do it is like in mathematics. You take an axiom, a theory, and you say, I'm going to suppose that consciousness is this, as I'm saying now. Consciousness is primary. Consciousness is singularity. And see if I can, from this logic, deduct certain things that actually will work. If they do work and if they obey all the laws that we have seen, if, if they answer all so many questions that we have not been able to answer, then we can say, well, it's a logic that can make sense. It's a theory that could be considered. So the proof of the theory in this case is by the practicality of its answers to the questions that we are having about consciousness. So we are reverting the problem and taking an assumption and try to see if this assumption could make sense. All right, so far we say, fine, there is nothing but consciousness. It's a theory. I mean, you can't, and I'm saying this is what it is. 
Of course, how did I prove it? I didn't prove anything. I'm just giving you a uh, proposal of something. Because we're saying it's consciousness, we're saying, okay, it must have these three values. But these three values in the primary state of its own existence are all that there is. There is nothing else. That's our supposition already. So this is included in the theorem. It's included in the assumption. Okay? So this is the assumption. Then, therefore, similarly, the observing hood, meaning what connects the observer to the observed, is the system of observing. So the observing hood in that quality, O superscript G, is also infinite. They're all infinite. It's three infinities we have. Okay, that's the theory. Now, what does it mean that OR is infinite? Now, we know OR is observer. Okay? It means that consciousness has no limit in its ability to observe. Yet, it is always observing itself since there is nothing else to be observed. Okay? <laughs> when we say the observed is infinite, it, it means that consciousness is all possible objects because that's objects observed. At the same time, the only object is actually itself. Okay, similarly, when we say the, the OG is infinite, it means all possible relationships between observers and observed are implicit in consciousness. But the only possible relationship in consciousness is itself within itself. It's a theory, huh? it's an assumption. All right, now, what is consciousness then? Consciousness, we can start to define it now with its constituent elements. Instead of going into what is the brain and how the brain can create this, what we are doing is reversing the problem altogether. We are starting from consciousness and saying, what is consciousness? What does it, what does it contain? What is it actually? Can you define it? So the consciousness we are saying here is the togetherness of these three features, the observer, the observed, and the observing which connect them. Each of them is of infinite value. This is just for mathematics purposes. We can write it like this, ultimately, that consciousness equal consciousness, bracket with, that is consciousness with, a, with an uppercase C, equals a reality in which consciousness has infinite observer, infinite observed, and infinite observing. So infinite observerhood, observed hood, and observing hood. Okay? We, are, we agree on this? Why do you say that the observer can only observe itself? Because there is nothing else but itself. There is an infinite observed body to be observed. Right? Yeah, but that's it's itself. That's itself. So they're all, all three are just one? Are just one. That is the three-one structure of consciousness. So then why do you need three branches? We need three because it's called consciousness. <laughs> if it was called uh, imagination, I don't know, it could be 10 or 20 or million or infinite. But consciousness at its basis, to be conscious of something, how can you be con What does it mean to be conscious? It means there is an observer who is conscious, observing something, is conscious of something. 
right? So you are forced to have a reflective relationship in which one side it is actually an observer, another side it's something that's observed. That's why it's consciousness, it's reflecting on itself. But what connects the observer to the observed? Some kind of mechanism. What is it? It's own self. It's all singularity. What we are doing here is defining consciousness with, a, with an uppercase C as being the reality, this is the primary singularity, as being the reality in which observer observed and observing hoods are infinite, unlimited, and they are the same. There is singularity, they are exactly the same. So you're observing yourself. It's a self-observing mechanism. I'm just trying to tell the scientists, come on, this is what happened before the Big Bang, <laughs> which is something nobody has any idea about. And when you look at the calculations, <laughs> when you look at the calculations of mathematics, that, that's why they tell you, we know just a fraction of a moment after the Big Bang. But what happened before the Big Bang? All the equations collapse. All the physics equations that analyze what happened exactly at the Big Bang or before the Big Bang, they take you to some crazy place where energy is infinite or time is zero or this. They get into all kinds of things that don't make sense. So I'm saying, look, I'm giving you the answer here. <laughs> I was raised with, I think, a simpler definition of consciousness than yours. And that is that consciousness is what you have less and less of as you go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is relative consciousness. We'll get to that. That is not your consciousness that you're experiencing now. You know, that is not. That is a big C consciousness. That is the consciousness, and it's good you pointed out, before the Big Bang. That is just pure existence, the unified field, in which all these values are infinite. Self-referral, infinite experience of pure existence consciousness. Now the problem we face is, fine, it's sitting by itself happy and all is good. Why does it bother to create this entire universe? How come from that one consciousness, we're getting this multiplicity of consciousnesses? And we see how we can do that. Which means, what are the bits of consciousnesses that you're asking about? Like my consciousness, your consciousness of something. We can define these bits of consciousness. Here it's capital C, but it could be, just because it's at the beginning of the sentence, it could be a lowercase c. It says any consciousness, any bit of consciousness is the big consciousness, but it's, it's this quality of consciousness in which the observer is, is that OR is X, OG is Y, and OD is Z. Which means now we're defining any bit of experience of consciousness in which there is an observer. How much he has observerhood quality is defined by OR. In this case, OR equals X. There is an object to be observed. You know, you're looking at the flower, you're looking at the planets, whatever you are. This is the object. And that object is observed equals Z. 
And then you are living in this universe of ours in which there are ways to look at the planets or to look at the flower, which are defined by the electromagnetic field, by this, by that, by all the laws of nature that connect you as an observer to the flower that is being observed. And these are what we would call the laws of nature, and they are defined in this particular case by the observing, which is, has a value of y. So any bit of consciousness can be defined by such an equation. Now, we still haven't answered how this goes into multiplicity. We have, we have infinite potential observing, infinite pure unbounded consciousness, and we have said there are bits of consciousnesses, and they could be defined. But how this comes to that? What makes this one consciousness become many? What makes the one become the many and gets differentiated? Here is a bit of what looks complicated, but it's actually very simple. It says, for the singularity of consciousness, each of the three features of consciousness can be seen as dominant. And these give three possibilities. If you look at observer by himself, don't look too much at this, it'll complicate life. <laughs> too many symbols. But it's just one way to write it. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> you are the infinite observer, right? You're sitting there, I am infinite observerhood. I'm infinity in terms of observer value. How much do you have yourself as an observer of actually the value of being an object as an observer? So when OR is seen and looks at itself as being infinite, it actually has zero object quality, zero observing quality. The observerhood is absolutely infinite, therefore, it cannot tolerate to be an object, in a sense. Can it not have all the properties altogether? Well, then it will be the big consciousness. Then we would be talking about consciousness. The big consciousness with a capital C has all the three qualities together. Now we are intellectually trying to analyze what is the component in OR being infinite, what would be the component OD and OG? They are zero. Because that OR is infinite. It means it tolerates nothing but being an infinite observer. So observerhood is infinite. Observerhood is infinite. Itself, it doesn't see itself as an object. Here there is a, a duality in the problem. Because we said it's the same thing. The same observer, when he looks at himself or herself or itself, whatever it is, the same infinite observer, when it looks at itself as an object, it sees itself as an infinite object. And it sees itself as a dynamics of infinite potential of observing. But when we analyze that this, there are three values in the one value, of singularity of consciousness, there are three values. Now we're going to say, well, we're not anymore analyzing the primary value of big consciousness. We are looking at its components independently. 
And now we take the observer, isolate it, and say what it is. Well, it's an infinite, just, pure observer quality. There is nothing else within itself except being an observer. And that is what leads to the fact that when you look at any of these independently, you find that they have none of the other values. They are infinite object, infinite subject, and infinite process of observing. Are you saying that since it is infinite and has all possibilities, it's free not to observe or to be an object at a given time? And that's one condition, and you're defining that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That can be seen like that also. So that as an observer, I am full of being an observer within myself, and I'm not to be seen as an object. There is nothing but that reality. So how finite experiences emerge in consciousness? The reality is that there is three-in-one nature of consciousness. This three-in-one nature of consciousness that we're talking about is a concept. But this perfect symmetry of the singularity of consciousness is broken by this concept. The concept that there are three is a concept. It's not real. It's a concept because there is no other way. It's consciousness, and therefore we say there are three. So this concept, even though being a concept, it breaks the symmetry of the singularity into three values. Even and the reality is that consciousness cannot exist without the three. Yet the three creates a split within consciousness into three values, because it is consciousness again. Now we're going to analyze the situation, which is very interesting as we start to go into a finer analysis of what consciousness really is and how the dynamics emerge. And that is we're going to look at how OR goes from infinity to, to zero, how that is possible. Okay, as we saw earlier, OR is infinite, therefore these are zero. OD is infinite, therefore these are other things are zero. That's a critical point. When OR, which by its nature observes, observes OD, which is itself anyway, it sees an infinite OD, but that infinite OD is a feature whose OR is zero. We just said that if it's an infinite OD, it is actually, it's the OR within it is zero. So the, the OR, the big OR here, says I am infinite OR. I look at myself as an object, but as an object, what does the object observe? Nothing. The object has zero observer ability. When you look at the stone, you see how much the stone is looking at me. Zero as far as I'm concerned, okay, from a gross perspective. So the object has zero observability. That actually creates a shock in the observer quality, a shock in a sense. It's the observer has suddenly realized it is infinite, but it can also be zero. There is a situation in which the observer quality or factor is zero, correct? All this is on the level of concept. This is the Big Bang. This is how the Big Bang happens. The infinite observer 
looks at itself and sees that it is possible for its own self to be zero. So the entire infinity of observerhood collapses to zero. There is a huge compression. That compression, that infinity collapsing to a point, explodes in all possibilities back from zero to infinity. That's the Big Bang. Any questions? It's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> So why the Big Bang happens? They say at the beginning of the Big Bang, energy was infinite, temperature was huge, and there was a huge expansion. That's the thing. The reason is, when you, when you compress a gas, for example, what happens? It heats up. Huh? Temperature goes very high. These are concepts. You know, we'll get why we have these concepts. They are part of the same thing. When you're compressing and filling the tire of your bicycle, you are repeating the process of how the Big Bang happened by creating heat and temperature. <laughs> In a way, of course, don't take it literally. So when the infinite observer collapses itself into a point, so what is happening? Infinity is now in a point. I am an infinite observer, but I see that I could be zero observer, like here, because I'm an object also. Being an object, I am zero observer. Therefore, there is the potential for me to be zero. That is the compression of infinity into a point. The compression of infinity a point leads to an explosion. An explosion of what? An explosion of patterns of qualities and bits and pieces of relationships between zero and infinity. All possibilities emerge. So what you get from this initial pattern of three values collapsing into one point and exploding, it explodes between zero and infinity in all kinds of possibilities it was to move back to infinity. We'll come back to that. Let's see what happens then. You know, we say we have the Big Bang. The theory I'm presenting to you is that we don't have only one universe. We have an infinite number of universes. And in these infinite numbers of universes are all the possible combinations of anything between zero and infinity any kind of possible observerhood, observinghood, and observedhood are possible. Anything, absolutely anything you can ever imagine. In any shape, in any form, in any pattern. And they emerge everywhere, in consciousness. Nothing emerges because actually consciousness is just a play within it. It's just a simple play within consciousness. It ripples within its own reality. But since it is consciousness, it could have been infinite consciousness at the beginning, it became zero consciousness, but now let's say for the sake of example, plus one consciousness, plus two consciousness, plus three consciousness. These are bits of consciousness. You can say the stone is a bit of consciousness. We will come to how we can, we can see that. But we're saying this has exploded within itself into all of these different patterns from zero to infinity. One of these patterns 
one of these patterns has the ability to define OG here. This is our universe. In our universe, one of these patterns decides that we'll have the speed of light equals to whatever we know, C. Planck's constant is H, and the Newton's gravitational constant is G. So that's our universe. In our universe, these are all the values that define OG in our universe. How many OGs are possible? An infinite number of them. An infinite number of universes, which makes it that in some universe, you will live only for one split second and you will vanish. In another universe, you could be immortal. In this universe of ours, we live whatever our condition is because we have those constants. And this is a big question about, about physicists and scientists and all of that. They always say, if the universe, our universe, had even the slightest change in C or the slightest change in Planck's constant, we would not exist. The galaxies would not form. The planets would not form. We would absolutely collapse. Okay, fine. There are universes where this happens. <laughs> there are plenty of possible universes in which actually this happens. Why? Because this explosion from point to infinity has all possibilities. We are just one possibility. And that one possibility happens to be this one, in which we have a history of 14 billion years, and we tell our, our stories about this whole thing. So before the Big Bang, since the only thing that existed was consciousness, that means that the thing that triggered that explosion and, uh, and the contraction into a, into a point of singularity is itself. Itself. And it's nothing came out. Nothing came out except patterns within itself. Patterns within itself. It was one, and then it is three. It is three, and now it is multiple. It's the same thing. What are these bits? They are all bits of consciousness, nothing else. What we are, this is the conclusion, what we are made of is patterns of consciousness. That's the answer. What we are looking for as what is the stuff of life is just ripples of consciousness, patterns of consciousness. Now, because it's patterns of consciousness, when you are trapped in that pattern, you can see things as a tree, a hole, a house, a story, and our life and our history in the universe. These are just our condition in life and our OGs that define how we are going to experience these patterns. We are stuck in these patterns. We are not, you know, we can evolve and there is a system where one can evolve and reach higher states of consciousness and actually discover the reality to be infinite and unbounded and find the solution to this. And that is what all the sages have been saying about this. And we'll come to this if we have time. <laughs> but, so I'll move on. So that is the reality. So we said there are all possible uh, universes in which all possible relationships of these three factors exist. And that this creates an infinite number of patterns of consciousness. And that all, all that there is all that there is, is patterns of consciousness. There is nothing but patterns of consciousness. So the material and physical world are just patterns of consciousness, having all possible observed hood, observing hood, and all possible observer hood. 
Now, what is energy? That is really, as we said, because now we have to start examining the things that we say are real, that emerge from this. So we said that when OR goes from infinity to zero, a huge compression occurs, and this is seen in the very high, as the very high energy or temperature after the Big Bang. Now, what is space? The expansion of the universe in the Big Bang is the expansion of observerhood in all possible values, now from OR being zero back to OR being infinite. Because it has come to zero, and finding that it's zero, it was compressed and exploded. And on the way back to infinity, it's going to meet all the intermediate values within that expansion. And therefore, space is what is really this expanded back towards infinity. So the universe, it cools down as OR moves back towards infinity after the Big Bang. What is time? Time is an illusion, in fact. Because all of this, what happened, that we said happens, is actually happening simultaneously. It all happens within the nature of consciousness. It's not that now consciousness sits there and thinks, I am one, and I'm actually three. And if I'm an observer, I'm infinite, but I'm also zero. Therefore, I'm going to compress myself and become so many. This is all inherent within the nature of consciousness, that it has a dynamic within itself that is of infinite possible patterns, all kinds of possible patterns. So now, either the good news or the bad news. <laughs> How we experience time sequentially. It's just we are trapped in a universe which has a certain pattern of consciousness. And that pattern of consciousness allows you to observe things in a sequential form. It allows you to observe this, and then this, and then this, and then this. So when you say time is passing, my life is going from here to here to here, it is just the process of transformation of the waves and patterns of consciousness that is allowing you to see one thing after the other. So in reality, it's like you take a person who has a computer and never seen a computer before. And this computer has infinite number of things. They are already stored on the hard disk. Everything is already there simultaneous. But the person has only that capacity to punch certain numbers of things on the, on the keyboard. And the algorithms within the programs of the computer create a history for him or for her. And then they start seeing images one after the other. And they think it's happening as a sequence. It's like you're watching a movie on a DVD. And you think that these images are happening one on a sequence. But it's all actually simultaneously present on the DVD. In the same way, every possible pattern is present in the computer or in the universe. And the illusion of time is just because our own pattern of consciousness, which constitutes what we are, our little bit of consciousness, that we as individuals are, allows us to go through the film or through the story in such a sequence. So we say it's a sequential thing, sequential, sequential, because it's actually sequential and time passes. But it's all relative. 
That's how we can explain so many problems in actually physics and time and dilation of time and all of these things. Okay, you're, you're still with me? Okay, so then perception of time depends on what? Depends on the observer, depends on the observing and what is being observed. And that is really the story of why we see things in sequence, whereas everything is actually simultaneously present in this one field of consciousness and there is nothing else. So now the question is, do these patterns exist? Can we say they are real? Yes, they exist. Yes, they are real. Which means we are not saying we are living in illusion. That's very important because it's not like the theory that everything is illusion and this is not real and this is... It's as real as anything. It's a pattern within consciousness. Consciousness is real and its patterns are real and this table is real and I am real and you are real. The lecture is happening, don't worry. <laughs> And you'll get credit for the course. But it's, but it's all patterns of consciousness. That's what it is. That's simply, we are not negating the existence and the reality of anything. Everything exists in a relative term. Everything is real. But what is it in absolute terms? It's just pattern of consciousness. It's consciousness as a whole. So who has consciousness then? Who has consciousness? We ask this question. We will say everything has consciousness. In fact, it's not the answer that I'm looking for. No one has consciousness. No one has consciousness. Everyone is consciousness. If you have it, it's like your observerhood. That's what you're talking about. You have observerhood quality, but consciousness is the three together. So. That is the problem of being and having. To have is observerhood, to be is consciousness. We are consciousness. That brings us to the problems in science and philosophy about ontology, which is what exists, what is real, what is being, what is becoming. We've all answered them this afternoon. Isn't that fantastic? They have been having, discussing this for thousands of years. And epistemology, what can we know? What is the truth? What is belief? What's justification? That's epistemology. We've answered all of these. Rational or empirical? Now, how can we verify that this logic about consciousness that we're talking about makes any sense? First, we're saying we're using logic, rational, that it actually holds ground in terms of rationality. We can make a sense, we can make a logic, of course, our axiom, our beginning point, is an assumption. That's all mathematics is like that. There is no mathematics that starts without an axiom. The axiom is a non-proven theorem, non-proven theory. You cannot even prove it. By definition, you cannot prove it. But it works. And the fact that it works and creates theorems and makes the universe work, it is applied in physics, it's applied in the universe, it gives us solutions about the movement of the planets and the light and the speed of things and how we are, we say, fine, this axiom is real, but nobody's able to prove this. It's an axiom. Now we can have to, in science, we don't feel satisfied just because there are reasonably make sense based on axiom. We try to study empirically, which means make analysis and see if there's anything like this that looks like it has patterns in it. And we can say, okay, what are the patterns that we know about? That is, our physical body is one kind of pattern. 
material, physical boundaries, the Earth, we can study the Earth, we can study our physiology, we can study the nervous system. They are structures, and these have patterns, patterns of structure. Now, usually we don't study the patterns of the non-material thing, because these are abstract things. But in order to come to this conclusion, it was not just a fanciful thought I'm going to stand for. It would be nice to tell them something amusing. <laughs> it's something that comes from a very profound research and study and mentoring with teacher Maharishi, who has gave me this ancient knowledge of the Veda. And it's been 20 years of study into this. Now, I reversed the story by starting like this. But the issue was, OK, we have matter. It has patterns. We have consciousness. It has also patterns. But these patterns of consciousness have not been much studied. At MIT, there was a professor, which you know, Chomsky, who was, uh, you know, looked at grammar and, and logic and all of that, and tried to look for patterns in our way of speaking, in our grammar, in what we speak when we are young, when we do this, when we do that. So what we have done is look at the patterns of human thought. Is there a pattern in human consciousness? How can you find these patterns in human consciousness? So what we do is go to the study of the pattern of thought. So there are patterns in the physical universe. There are patterns of human thought. It will become more clear as we proceed, this pattern of human thought. So physical universe, we have seen the unified field. It all comes. Everything comes from the unified field. And all of these physical aspects are patterns of the unified field. There is a technology of consciousness, transcendental meditation, which brings us to this unified field. What are the patterns of human thought? Music, for example, art. These are patterns of human thought. Music is harmony and melody and repetition of sound. This, this repetition of sound in a certain organized way, where does it come from? It comes from the consciousness of the musician. And the musician puts this in melody, in rhythm, in patterns. And these patterns reverberate with our body. They make us feel better. They make us feel good. They make us sad. They make us happy. These patterns of consciousness, actually. Why? Because the musician discovers this in his mind and his thinking and then creates the music and it influences us. So human thought, mind, intellect, these are also having patterns. We discussed this in physics. Now I move to the other set. Science actually today is trying to understand all areas of life. Not only physics, chemistry, biology, but also psychology, sociology, art, beauty, morality, spirituality. Why is science is able to study these? It's because there are laws of nature that determine not only how physical world works, but also the psychology, the sociology. So what are patterns? Patterns are actually structure. You can look at structure, and you can look at function. What do these patterns do? And one of the aspects of patterns that I have looked at, guided by Maharishi, is Veda. Why Veda? Why we chose Veda as an ancient term. In Sanskrit, it means knowledge. And so in English, it's knowledge. In French, it's connaissance, etc. But it's just a word that means knowledge. Now, why Veda and Vedic literature? Why studying Veda? It's really what I looked at as the pattern of this knowledge, of this literature. Why the literature? 
Literature is a product of human mind. I could have studied maybe some music or something. Decided to go to Veda because Veda is the most ancient knowledge between quotation marks that is available to us. And that knowledge pretends to be all that there is, that it has all the roots of law and the roots of patterns of consciousness and presentation of consciousness. Now, since it has been looked at in the past in terms mostly of its meaning, people have translated it and tried to study what it means, it has become like a philosophy, then it become like a religion and all of that. And I have looked at this because in Veda, it also describes the same logic in a way that we have been going through, that everything is consciousness. And as is the atom, so is the universe. As is the body, so is the cosmic body, which means these are the patterns of consciousness. This is Maharshi who introduced me to this knowledge of Veda and guided this research that I will be talking to you about. He comes from a tradition of Vedic teachers, and he had taken the Veda and organized it into 40 aspects. You hear about yoga and all of that, it's very common. It's one of the 40 aspects of Veda and the Vedic literature. Now, what has been done is not look at these from the perspective of their meaning. We don't try to translate them and understand what is there. We looked at them as patterns of consciousness which means what is their physical structure, actual physical structure. So this is the tradition. And what the Veda says is something that we are been talking about in a sense. It's been a knowledge that has been there for all time, that all this is totality, that you are that, that I am totality. And you find then all different belief systems and great inspirations, they say the same thing. The nature of heaven belongs to man. In the Bible, which says God created man in his own image. In the New Testament, the kingdom of heaven is within you. In the Quran, that they are within you. All the laws of nature, do you not perceive them? And in the, even in the Islamic tradition, that you consider yourself to be a small atom, yet the whole universe is folded within you. So Maharshi took all of these 40 aspects of Veda and gave them each a function. And he told me that these must be available in your own human physiology. Because we are that, and these patterns are in the Veda, are patterns of consciousness. So to make a long story short, I took every one of these aspects, every one of these 40, and did not look at them from the perspective of their meaning, just from the perspective of their structure. So the yoga, for example, is a book. This book of yoga has four chapters, and each chapter has a number of subdivisions. The function of this book of yoga is similar to a function of unifying value in the brain, in the fibers that connect different parts of the brain, the association fibers. So I looked at the structure of the book, and I looked at the structure of the human brain, and found that they are exactly the same. So that every lobe of the brain, which has four parts, corresponded actually to one of the chapters of yoga. Not only as four and four, but if you look at this, I'm writing here chapter one. This is the occipital lobe. It's not chapter one of the brain. It's chapter one of yoga and chapter three of yoga. But they are there and their contents and their subdivisions 
corresponds to the divisions and subdivisions of the brain. Therefore, these patterns of thought which are available in yoga are the same patterns as the physical body, our own physical body. And when you go in great detail, you find that the functions are the same. What you see written here on these different parts of the brain are the sutras of yoga, and they correspond to the different functions that are in the brain. Now, in the similar way, I look at all the 40 aspects of Veda and Vedic literature and find exactly the same correspondence. For example, there is a book called Nyaya, and Nyaya is, means the lamp at the door, distinguishing and deciding. It has exactly the same function as the thalamus inside our brain. What is amazing is that it also has the same structure as this book. So the book of Nyaya has five chapters. The thalamus has five divisions. The book of Nyaya, the same book, has 16 topics, 16 subdivisions that define the entire book. And the thalamus has exactly 16 divisions that correspond one to one to these 16 values that are inside the book. So here we see that our thalamus inside our brain looks exactly like that book of Nyaya, which is an expression of patterns of consciousness that has been expressed in an innocent way. Now, sometimes when you read these books of the Veda, you don't understand anything, and people wonder, what is their value? And that's why Maharshi has said that their value is not in the meaning that is translated, but in their patterns of structure and function. These, I gave a few examples, but it's true for all the different aspects in Veda and Vedic literature. In a very detailed way, you can find actually, like in Rig Veda, one of the books, you can find every single nerve and its function to be a reflection of that book, which is called Rig Veda. What is very interesting is that our brain has what we call the basal ganglia inside it. And this basal ganglia corresponds to our planets in our solar system. That is in terms of what is called as Eastern astrology or Indian astrology, which is called Jyotish. This means this hypothalamus corresponds to the moon, and the thalamus to the sun, and this to that. Everyone has an individual correspondence. So our patterns of thinking correspond to the patterns that we have in our actual universe, in our actual solar system. And when you look at this astrology, which is Jyotish and in Indian astrology, Vedic astrology, the assignment of the functions of the planets is a reflection of what modern science has found to be the assignments of these structures in our brain. So either we are following the planets or we have projected our consciousness and our understanding to the planets even without knowing what is inside the brain. But naturally, our pattern of thought has been reflected in the pattern of our life and our cosmos and where the cosmos is about. I took another book of the Vedic literature, the Ramayana, and this time I looked at the stories that are happening within it. And you find that the stories are an exact reflection of the dynamics that are happening inside the brain. For example, if the king has ministers, then they correspond to the descending and ascending tracks of the nervous system. He has spies and informants. They 
happen to correspond exactly to the sensory system. You can have you know, a king, Rama here, and he has an arrow and a bow, and when you see how it is described, it looks like the vertebral column and the how the nerves send their inputs back and forth. So like this, you can find, for example, these are deities, and they correspond to structures in the physiology in quite some detail. And this means that all of these values that are found in literature and found in concepts, human concepts, are actually a reflection of the physical structure of our body. And our body is a reflection of this consciousness value that is found in the Vedic literature. Like that, in great detail, and I'm giving just small examples of all of these values within our body where you can see in the nervous system every person that has been described in these stories and these values in terms of their structure and as well and in terms of their function. So there are two books that has been written on this. This one book about Veda and physiology and this is another book about Ramayana and human physiology. So the conclusion is that the patterns of consciousness are the ultimate reality, that intelligence is actually the basis, the consciousness is the basis of matter, and consciousness is all that there is, and it's all of its patterns that we are living and experiencing. That's what creates the laws of nature, that's what creates our physical body, that's what creates our history and experience. And all of this is real, but the constituent is consciousness. Now what is beautiful is there is a technology to develop consciousness. And that is, you know, all the meditation, transcendental meditation is what we've studied with more than 700 research studies that show that when you act on consciousness, you develop the whole physiology. And that is a very important finding because from the level of awareness, you see transformation in the body. You see better immune system response, you see removal of diseases, you see better behavior, you see changes in society also. So that by itself is also a scientific demonstration of how from consciousness, a simple technique, you sit, you close the eyes and you transcend, you create all transformation in the individual physiology and in society. This is an additional demonstration of the relationship between patterns of consciousness being at the basis of what we call matter, and matter is nothing but consciousness. So we know all about consciousness now. So you remember the unified fields uh, chart, which says that everything comes from the unified field? The assumption is that when you actually transcend, which means go beyond the relative in your consciousness as an individual, the mechanisms that are within our brain, because we contain the total natural law, allow us to go to the deeper levels and actually go back to that original consciousness. So the mind, the human mind, has the ability to go to the unified field. And if you go to the unified field, you can experience within it its own patterns. If you are well established in that unified field on the level of your own consciousness, you can actually what we call cognize these patterns. You can see them. And the way you express them or draw them is through sound. So actually the Veda is nothing but the experience of the patterns within consciousness and how they evolve expressed in sound.
You didn't get it? Or you not agree? My question was really how is it a coincidence that the 40 chapters correspond one one to the 40 chapters of the brain? Or no, this is 40 aspects, 40 aspects, and each aspect has a number of chapters and divisions and subdivisions. Was yoga only one aspect that I took? But all the other 40 aspects are like yoga, nyaya, vaisheshika. These are different values of the Vedic literature. And each one corresponds to different parts of the brain. It's not just one example. It's a huge number of detail about the body and its structure available in the Veda. How they discovered that? Why is it that Veda is that? So the assumption or the theory or the, the belief is that Veda is actually describing the patterns of consciousness that create the human physiology and the universe. How do you get there? How Veda got to be known is like there are these individuals who went deep inside of themselves and went into the unified field, so they transcended. And by transcending, they experienced the vibrations within consciousness. And these vibrations and patterns within consciousness are the laws of nature that we experience, and that's why they are similar to the human physiology. You see? It's identical. I mean... <laughs> You see, when, when we say a musician like Mozart goes within himself and feels a melody, a music comes out, where did he get to feel that? Why that melody has such universal appeal? Why is it that after generation and all across cultures, people like it and feel great about it? It's because it vibrates with something very deep within us. There is a harmony that is universal. These are patterns of consciousness. We can call them patterns of consciousness that corresponds to the patterns of our body and therefore there is resonance, there is harmonics. And that is why we feel something about it. It makes us feel this way or that way. Now where did Mozart get his music from? From his consciousness. He went in and he felt this harmony. What we are saying is that if you go even deeper than Mozart and deeper than Einstein on the logical level, you actually experience those patterns, but the more basic patterns. And then the assumption is that Veda is just those patterns. And that's how they reflect themselves in the cosmos and in our body. Okay? But is it the easy problem and the hard problem of consciousness? Yes. That's the hard problem. We're talking about the hard problem. Yeah, the easy problem is how to how the brain works to create like the ability to see red or to see blue, but not how to experience it. The hard problem is where is consciousness coming from that makes me experience this this way. So the answer to the hard problem is that consciousness is all that there is. Consciousness is everything. And everything else are patterns of this consciousness. Now, in support of this, we look at the patterns. What patterns physically is our body. Mentally is the products of the mental process or the experience. And that is literature, you know. And in such case, it's Veda. Okay? Talk about these non-physical patterns. For example, mind, subjective experiences. 
So obviously, there's a range of spectrum of our mental activities or emotions. Some that sell more within the characterization of judgment are productive, some not. So can you elaborate within these patterns? I assume implicit in this uh, correlations you have with the Veda knowledge, there's some that are more productive for our existence than there's some that are not. Yeah. So if you can comment, then what happens? Do we have like all sort of different mind patterns and some of them are more productive for us to become more in harmony with than others? Do you see what I'm yeah. trying to Yeah, ask? yeah, the so evolution, the growth, the, the growth. Sorry? Yeah, absolutely. Because we are in a certain universe, and in this universe, I took some examples, but there are laws of nature. So we happen to fall in this universe in which there are certain laws of nature. You can have the ability to uh, try to change the patterns and act what we would say against those laws of nature. So that is not evolutionary. That is not helpful. That creates pain. That is strain because you are within a certain context. To act within this universe, you have to follow the laws of nature. So the laws of nature of this universe are what makes it good to do this way and bad to do the other way. That is where also morality can come from, where is action in a tune with natural law comes from. It's because you are aligned with these laws within your universe. The Bipan uh, is formed by, uh, so, uh, from the universal conscious and the C itself, and see there's a zero, right? So by, by talking like that, I think there's an implication that there's a sequence happening, right? But sequence, like, like, like you mentioned earlier, is also a, a product of the pattern. So that's where I get lost. Yeah, the thing is that when we say sequence, is a sequence in our logic. In our analysis, there is a sequence. But in reality, it's all simultaneous. See, when you say consciousness is one, but it has three values. Why it has three values? Because it must be an observer, observed process of observation. And then if you analyze this infinity going to a point, then it means that it has this and that. All of these are simultaneous. It's not time bound. It's all there. And it's all ripples within that consciousness. So in the simplest form of saying there is consciousness, we say it has three values. But in the more complete form, it has infinite values. That's the reality of it that is spontaneous and simultaneous. You know, it's like without the three values, you don't have consciousness. But without the infinite values, you don't have consciousness, ultimately. And they are all coexistence. Stuck in these patterns of nature, and in this universe, we have to uh, act in accordance with all the laws of nature. If we don't, then create some strain. Yes. But at the same time, the possibilities are infinite right. for these patterns of consciousness. So, can't we just change the patterns of consciousness within, its, within ourselves? Yeah. And who changes it? Is it the big C or the little C? And if it's the big C, is that okay with the laws of nature? Whereas if it's the little C, it's not okay. Um, that, that also uh, goes to evolution. Of yeah, evolution. it's like where you are, you know, where you are, what is your pattern today, and what it allows you to do, and what you choose to do with it. 
And that is the evolution, the evolution. I do this, I learn this, I do this, I learn this. I add more complexity to my pattern, more orderliness to my pattern, and therefore I widen my consciousness. And I'm able to see and act in accordance with more of the laws of nature. Ultimately, you get to what is called enlightenment and all of that. What is enlightenment is that your pattern becomes so complex and so big that it's able to actually get to the secret that actually it's all patterns after all. And you transcend, that's what transcending means. You transcend the limited pattern which you feel is your small self into the infinite self of pure being, pure existence, which is the big C that you get. And you realize that you ultimately are the big thing, only living within this little pattern. But knowing that and being that gives you all the power and energy and support from that infinity and more flexibility, wider perception. And that's what we have seen with people who practice these techniques, transcendental meditation, because they actually go there and they experience pure existence, pure being, and they come out more fresh, more creative, more able to act in accordance with the laws of nature. And then they're able to act in, a, in an by, evolutionary by way. Or, or in the infinity, and it's more a matter of attention. Yeah, exactly. The thing is, the bottom line really in this question is, it's not enough to know things intellectually. You have to actually believe me really deeply. <laughs> and it's a very hard thing to do. You know, it's like making the difference between, okay, this sounds fine, and actually knowing it and believing it and living it, which is the reality that gets you out of the pattern and the boundaries of the pattern, is a different thing. So your pattern might say, okay, I can think of anything, but I am that thing. And you stay that thing, and you keep growing, you evolve, you change, and all of that. Okay? You mentioned that there is a set of uh, constants that define this specific universe. Uh, there are theories that say that those constants actually are not constant, that they are evolving and slowly changing. Yeah. So how do you explain that? Then, then, you know, our universe is a constant that change. This is one of the possibilities. We have thought that, you know, in classical physics, this is how it works. Motion of atoms and motion of particles and motion of objects is based on laws of motion by Newton. And then we discover that there is quantum mechanics and there is probability and uncertainty. Now we have these constants, but maybe we'll find that these constants also have been evolving. So what is this? It's part of the story that we are living. In one universe, they might be fixed. In our universe, they might be fixed, they might be evolving. It's really another option within the options of this infinite reality and of all possibilities. Can you talk about the laws of nature? I'm, I'm confused about that. You have the three up there on the board. When we talk about them coming from the Veda originally, right, which is sound. And then how can we know them and what they are and are they... Well, these laws of nature, like the constants, we know them from physics. We study them. But all the laws of nature that determine all aspects of our life and our universe are infinite in number. These are, you know, just examples of constants in our universe that determine how matter reacts with matter, how, what is the speed of light, and all of that, and define how our universe evolves based on these constants and why the galaxies were formed, why the planets were formed, why life on Earth became possible, 
because of all of these things. Otherwise, any one of them would change a little bit and the whole configuration of our universe would be different. But these are one set in which we are comfortably living in our own universe. There are other sets, other possibilities. You, you provided a framework of some equations to explain the state of consciousness before the Big Bang and how it resulted in Big Bang. And, and when you're talking about patterns of consciousness, so is there a mathematical equation uh, that, can, that can explain the different patterns of consciousness? Yeah, this, uh, I'm developing these mathematical equations as we go along. You know, we have to realize the Big Bang is only our perception of a history. But the Big Bang is something that happened within consciousness also. There is nothing that came out of it. But in our ability to perceive history in our universe, that is the history that we are able to see. Okay? I feel like uh, if uh, we are only one possibility out of the infinite uh, possibilities, right? Uh, like, is it even possible for us to come up with uh, what, what is before the Big Bang Theory? Because we have never experienced, like, we are governed, we are trapped in this pattern. So is this even possible? <laughs> is it, see what I'm saying? No, we're trapped, but we have, we have been, like, these patterns have become, like, if you want to say evolution, have created us as human beings to become more and more complex patterns. It's as if you're going from the infinite observerhood collapsing to a point and now exploding from a point back to infinite. So the patterns will reach a point where they become infinite again. And that's what we would call evolution. You know, planet Earth was formed and then, I mean, you know, the whole plasma and that whatever, then it collapsed and there was the inflation of space and then the collapse of the galaxies, then the stars, and then the cooling, and then the planets, and then the, the dinosaurs, and, <laughs> and then now we came. And we are more and more consciousness, more and more consciousness, more and more consciousness. So we are actually moving back towards this infinite observerhood ability. That's evolution. Nobody else has a question. That's one personal question. In the, in the realm of the uh, mind tapping to the very bottom of consciousness, like meditation and such, that's, that's the non-physical realm. And, uh, but in, in the physical realm, with all these patterns, uh, for example, right now our solar system has been in harmony for whatever time, but yet humans through this evolution I had no choice in the genetics that I came up with. I cannot go and tap all the way back to consciousness and change that pattern with the physical genetics, inheritance, diseases. Obviously, there's some that I can influence with yoga and diet and so forth. So where does that harmony and pattern, or whatever you call it, is it again random? I go back to my first question. It seems like in this universe, as far as physical stuff or planets, there is a way to allow for harmony rather than destruction. Yeah. But as a human physical, forget about the mind part that I can change a bit. I'm stuck with the pattern that the evolution of this universe has created. You can, from consciousness, you can change the pattern. This is where, for example, the technique that's transcendental meditation shows that from actual mental technology, 
you can change the body. Genetics? Yeah, absolutely. Ep yeah, epigenetics has, is a new science now that shows that you can actually transmit to your children and you can modify the characteristics of your genetic by improving yourself. This is a new science which, you know, 20 years ago we thought it was not possible. Epigenetics is a regulation of the genes you already dealt with. But, but yeah. I cannot change the amino acid in my thoughts or the, 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 the primary But they can change the actual expression of the genes, yes, of course, and its transmission to your siblings. You know, now we didn't get into, uh, you know, what happens to you, what is your soul after this, what happens to that pattern. It's a lot, other all long story. There was a question here. Yes, if we think the knowledge that all the Vedic stories occur within our physiology, so my question is, if we take the, the Ramayana, for example, and you, you've proven that it occurs in our physiology. Is it happening on a societal level as well, on a cosmic level? Are all these stories like the Gita happening within us as well? And societal, like it actually happened on Earth? Yeah, yeah. And it's ha happening on a cosmic level as well? Yeah. And my question is, I guess, um, I guess that's a story in the past, what, 5,000, 6,000 years? Was there a different story because of the way that consciousness evolved and expanded? Was there a different story maybe? 10 or 20,000 years ago, or a different age? It could be. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the one story, let's say, the Ramayana, has many facets to it. And one can be living one aspect in one history, and then another aspect in another passage of time, like that. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, Please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.